Talking sports as they report Back and forth from their home court They talk the sports if you're not sure They talk of sports and then talk more About all sports East, West, South, North Ryan talks sports Andrew retorts And George will hear as they both sort Through all the sports they both support The Walk-Ons What's up everybody? Welcome to the Walk-Ons Podcast A special Super Bowl edition of the Walk-Ons Podcast That we are officially one day away from Super Bowl 56 We've, of course, got all that to break down. We're going to break down the game. We've got a huge guest, Dave Lapham, former offensive lineman for the Bengals back in the 80s. He's also he's been their color and commentator on Bengals radio since 1986. So this man is he lives and breathes Cincinnati Bengals football. He's also the, the host of the in, the in the Trenches podcast. So we'll get to that in about 10 minutes. And of course, as I mentioned, Andrew Schuster. We are going to talk a lot of football today, but let's kick it off with maybe one of the craziest NBA trade deadline, trade deadlines ever I mean all kinds of big names on on the move and let's start with you know two guys who can't seem to be happy wherever they are and two teams who couldn't wait to get respect get rid of their respective superstars quote unquote James Harden is on his way to Philly Ben Simmons in return is on his way to Brooklyn I don't know if anybody wins this trade what do you think Andrew I mean it's there's been a couple ways I've thought about it I feel like there's been times where I'm like all right I think Brooklyn got the better end of this trade and then I'm like wait no but Philadelphia essentially traded a guy who hasn't been playing for them all year for a guy who's on the all-star team. And yes, they lost Seth Curry, who's been a huge favorite of Joel Embiid's because of his shooting capabilities. He can space the floor, but you know, especially with the Nets too, it's like, they're like, it's, you know, the stat where it was like in that experiment with James Harden, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, they only played a total of 16 games together. So bad. Like, that's, that is absolute absurdity. That's, that's not even a fifth of an NBA season. And they dominated the NBA in terms of like trade, like talks for almost two years. And so to get Ben Simmons back, a guy who is definitely looking for a new situation, looking to be out of Philadelphia, and weirdly enough, somehow a better sports market is New York City for him than Philadelphia. You know, it really is one of those trades where I think both teams had to make it, especially if James Harden was going to walk. The, my biggest takeaway is less the basketball of it, of it all and more of the take of what does this say about the NBA right now? that these superstar players can just do this on such a consistent basis. And there's no penalty. There's, there's nothing that is, you know, it would have been all the karma in the world for Ben Simmons to get traded, but he goes to the Kings or he goes to Indiana or somewhere where it's like, dude, you've probably just made your situation much worse from your personal standpoint. And, you know, you, you need to like, there should be repercussions for this. And, you know, I know the world is unfair, especially in, in, in worlds where billions of dollars are at play, but, you know, I was even listening to, to the Bill Simmons podcast to local sports radio here. And they're just like, if you're not an NBA fan and you, you hear like what happened this week, you have to be like, the NBA is a joke. If, if, if star players can kind of hold their teams hostage like this and, and don't face any repercussions, if you're trying to foster like long-term feasibility with your league, you cannot just have these superstar players dictate everything that, that the league does. It's just, it's nonsense. And I think that's why my takeaway is less, oh, the Sixers got better or the Nets got better. It's just, this is so dumb that like these two teams could even be in this situation. And these two players, I mean, James Harden has forced his way out of two teams in two years. And it's just like, okay, so if he could do it again next year, if he wanted to, it's just, it's, it's kind of nonsense. And it's weird that that's kind of where my mind goes to versus, oh, wow, the Nets and Sixers both just added like dynamic franchise players. Yeah. Look, we've talked about it on this show before, right? The NBA is, is the most player-friendly league of any of the professional sports and you know 
on the surface, it sounds great, right? You want to give the, your best, the, the stars, the people who put, you know, the guys who put butts in the seats at the stadium, the guys who put eyeballs on the TV, you know, with streaming and on cable. But at the end of the day, this is what you get when you put the power in the players' hands. You mentioned James Harden's already done this once in Houston. I mean, you can see you got guys like Anthony Davis when he was in, you know, New Orleans and forced his way to L.A., I mean, this is what happens, and it is kind of silly where basically just, you know, halfway through the season or even before, in Ben Simmons' case, he didn't play a single game this year, you're basically just saying, all right, man, hey, if you're not happy, you can just sit down, take your ball, and go home. And, you know, you end up in a better situation. You're right. I mean, we're going to get to the Kings here in a second because God knows what the hell they're doing. But, yeah, I mean, these guys don't necessarily deserve to just be, you know, whiny babies and then get rewarded for it, right? But I got to say, like, this has got to be it, at least for James Harden, right? Philadelphia is a team that's ready to win, you know, poison win a championship. They didn't have to give a lot, a lot of pieces. Yes, the Seth, Seth Curry is, is a big loss, but you got Joel Embiid who's playing arguably his best basketball of his career right now. James Harden comes in. That's a team that's going to challenge in the East. So this has really got to be it. I mean, if, if this thing hits the fan next year and James Harden tries to force his way out, the, the only place he belongs is in Sacramento because it's just, you can't keep doing this over and over again. And I think the one thing that I go back to is, I mean, how much blame does Kyrie Irving have to take for this, right? Because, yeah, James Harden is who we know he is. He's kind of a baby, and he'll he'll do whatever it takes to make himself happy. But if Kyrie Irving doesn't decline to get vaccinated this season and he's playing all those games, you know, maybe, the, maybe they're still in first or second, or they're at the top of the East, right? Right now they're sliding down there in eighth place. And so, of course, people are going to be unhappy. Durant's hurt. Um, you know, there's been all kinds – Joe Harris is hurt. But – in your opinion, Andrew, how much is this? How much of this is a little bit on Kyrie Irving? Because that's somebody we're not necessarily talking about. But this dude can't even play home games anymore. Like he, he we don't know if he's ever going to play another home game again in Brooklyn. Oh yeah, it's if the only thing it's 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 weird about it is like we're so just used to how nonsensical Kyrie Irving is yeah. that it's just become the norm. So like we're like you know it's it's one of those where like ten years ago, could you ever imagine saying one of the top twenty players in the NBA was only going to play road games? And we'd all just like get used to that. Like we'd all would just it like we would yeah, just okay. become a part of like the norm of the NBA season. And so yeah, it's a ton of it is on his fault. Almost everything that you could talk about with the next like not living up to the potential that they've you know potentially we talked about two years ago. Like almost all of it is on Kyrie Irving and just the disorganization and dysfunction he fosters wherever he goes. It's just a cyclone of just disorder. And you know you saw it with the Celtics. He went to the Celtics and it's like. Oh, the Celtics are now the team to beat now that LeBron is, you know, they're the only team in, in the Eastern Conference that can stand up to LeBron's Cavs. And then he goes there and they're a joke compared to like what their potential should have been. And then he goes to Brooklyn. And yes, that first year KD was hurt. So they weren't, they weren't really on the timetable of getting to contend right away. But then he is starting to play. And then now it's this whole vaccine thing. Just every we talked about it at length last year. Just everything he does has to be contrary and, and attract attention. And so, yes, we just, this is a huge factor in this. If, if he's playing this whole year, like we said, they only played 16 games together. If they're playing a full season, yeah, they're probably firmly in the driver's seat in the Eastern Conference. It's them or Milwaukee or Miami. And then instead, it's like now James Harden's leaving. But to answer your question, it's just because we're so used to like how ridiculous the Kyrie situation is that it's just become the norm. And so we don't even think about it. We're just like, oh, yeah, Kyrie's being Kyrie. And we've just come to accept it. Yeah, you give the children the power and you get childish outcomes. That's the way it goes. I mean, the one thing I will say is, you know, Daryl Morey came out of this actually maybe looking better than he could have before, right? I mean, obviously this Ben Simmons thing has pervaded the, the entire offseason ever since they got eliminated last year in the playoffs. And it was like, I mean, 
we knew Ben Simmons wasn't going to play for Philadelphia. So where could he end up? What could you get back in return for him? And the fact that Daryl Morey was able to pull James Harden away from Brooklyn. I mean, Hey, that's, that's a nice win, but you're right, Andrew. It's it. You got, you put the power in guys' hands like this, like Kyrie Irving and James Harden and Ben Simmons, who have proven they can't be adults and act like adults. And so you're going to get childish outcomes. That's just the way it goes. But let's move on to some of the other big moves because there was a lot of movement and grooving. This one's a little bit different. And just in that, look, Kristaps Porzingis, he's on his way to Washington from Dallas. Clearly, it didn't work with the front office there. He had all kinds of problems with the GM, with Mark Cuban. Uh, certainly, uh, there was a you know there were some reports before Rick Carlisle got fired that, that there was some some animosity there, even some stuff with Jason Kidd. So it just wasn't working. I don't think you know for Porzingis's part, he at least played out the string, right? Did what he did. I think he's still averaging like twenty and eight and a half or twenty and nine. So it's not like this guy has kind of quit on his team, but it just wasn't working. So look, they get. Dallas gets Davis Bertans and Din Spencer Dinwiddie back. I mean, it's not a huge haul, but I'm not going to say that this Porzingis trade suddenly makes Washington make it more interesting, but they're not going to challenge for, you know, for a title, but what does this do in maybe moving the needle for Bradley Beal and keeping him around in Washington long-term? Cause that's still something that's very much in the air. Oh, I don't think Bradley Beal suddenly goes, I'm staying with the Wizards because we got Chris Stops. <laughs> Come on, dude. Chris Stops. Everything you look at what the Wizards are doing right now is clearly them saying, this year's done. Uh, Bradley Beal, we're going to send you off the court so we can tank as much as possible. Uh, Spencer Dinwiddie, like, he wasn't really doing anything for them. Apparently, he was creating some locker room issues with his chemistry. It was just better to get him out of there. I think the Wizards are firmly looking at it like, we cannot continue this method of, of kind of making these moves where we stay in, like, the seven or eight seed. We're kind of on that, like, uh, that, that brink where it's like, are we going to rebuild or are we going to go all in? And I think they're finally just saying, like, we cannot – embrace that mentality anymore we need to definitively say we're going to keep Bradley Beal and rebuild around him or even potentially this summer we could see Bradley Beal get traded and they just do a full full rebuild restock the cupboard and just I think all the moves they're making I mean you said Montrez Hill to Charlotte I don't think any move they made was like this is now a win now move um, and for Dallas I mean it's pretty clear that within the context of the trade that they just were dumping Chris Kristaps Porzingis Mark Cuban's not looking at Spencer Dinwiddie and uh, poorly shooting Davis Bertans and saying, this is a move, a win now move because of the assets we're getting in return. It's an addition by subtraction. It's like no secret that Luca hated KP. And then you see his first game without him, he drops 51 with 23 in the first quarter. Like it's, it's clearly just like, we needed to get this parasitic toxic, uh, you know, presence out of our locker room. And it's just so odd to feel like at this point, Chris House Porzingis is like a dumping trade asset. And, you know, he, he wants to be thought of in the same vein as the, the Jokic's, the Carl Anthony Towns, the Joel Embiid's. And he's just not laughably even in the same ballpark as those guys. Even if in a vacuum, he is a solid player. He brings, you know, defensive versatility, but he just doesn't play in the post. And he's kind of just this redundant player. And I, I don't know. It's just when I saw that, that, that notification he was traded, I was surprised. But I was also like, am I shocked that, like, it got so toxic in Dallas that this happened? No. No, not at all. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think you're right. It, those moves aren't going to move the needle, but it certainly is something that's interesting to talk about. And, you know, you see these big names. Two years ago, Kristaps Porzingis was that next coming of a, of a Jokic, right? A different kind of player, but that kind of same level, right? When he got traded to Dallas from New York. And boy, that thing came off the rails really, really quickly. Now, let's talk about just a couple other moves. Obviously, let's look on the other side because I, I just can't get over what the Sacramento Kings are doing or, or what they're not doing. Um, basically, you know, 
I guess they're playing for that 10 seed and playing for the play-in because, you know, trading two guys who you had maybe multiple years of control, Buddy Heald, certainly, you know, there's, he's been in the talks for the last couple of years that he might be on the move, but Tyrese Halliburton was a young star. When you're in Sacramento, you have to hit on your draft picks and they haven't really for the last 10 years. Tyrese Halliburton, they finally did. I mean, Darren Fox, you could say he's, he's so far so good, but Tyrese Halliburton was that crown jewel that you've got un, could become a star loved Sacramento seemed to put their trust in them and they just ship him off for DeMontis Sabonis who hey he's a great player but he's not going to move the needle in Sacramento either so I mean meanwhile you got Marvin Bagley in a separate trade going to pist- going to the Pistons which fine I guess you know you can call it whatever you want they're getting rid of some bad contracts or some guys who aren't happy there but I don't know if anybody's ever going to be happy playing in Sacramento so what exactly are the Kings doing Andrew do you even know no one knows. Like, literally, that's the, the biggest storyline around this is just what are the Kings doing again? again? The Tyrese Halliburton trade can only be classified as you know the Indiana GM was doing his absolute best to try to not laugh as he's talking through the terms of the trade. Like he's got to be internal monologue going, what are they doing? I can't believe they're doing this. We're really going to get Tyrese Halliburton. Are they, I'm not surprised because it's Sacramento, but just this is surreal. Am I dreaming? He's, do- he's double checking if he's wearing all his clothes because it's not a dream. It's just, it's absurd. Um, and yeah, like you said, Tyrese Halliburton wanted to be there. You know, a lot of these young stars, if they're in small markets, they'll put on a, a good face and be like, yeah, I, I want to be here. They're paying me well, even though we suck and we're in a small market where at least I can't capitalize on being an NBA player in a big city. But, you know, the Kings have shown us time and time again, there's a reason they haven't made the playoffs since 2006. It's just, they don't know what they're doing. And it, it's, it's that, that they, they don't have a plan. Like they're, they're flip-flopping on the plan constantly. It's either, okay, we're going we're gonna to move all our chips into rebuild. No, wait, we're going to try to stay relevant. No, wait, we're going to rebuild. And there's no consistency to the moves. You know, it's one thing if, if there was just absolute consistency, then we could at least say, here's what their attempt is, even if they're not fulfilling it. But yeah, like you said, it's just, what are they doing? Yeah, it's kind of like giving a five-year-old a hundred bucks and tell him to go and toy, Toys R Us and buy, you know, get, get a nice like get a nice stack of some good things, you know, some some quality buys, some maybe some more expensive stuff, and they come back with like a hundred one-dollar suckers or something, right? And it's just like, well, look, you know, it seemed like the right thing to do at the time, but that's not going to give just going to give you the sugar rush of the century, and you're going to be crashing by three p.m. So yeah, I, look, I'm a Northern California kid. I remember when the Kings were good in the Chris Webber, Doug Christie days, Mike Bibby. Those seem so far gone that I just, I, it's like another lifetime. What, whatever the Kings are doing, they're not doing it right and they're not doing it well and they're doing it consistently, which is unfortunate. So it's tough to see them fall off the cliff like that. But, you know, I don't know, maybe it's time to just move the team to Seattle and then start fresh. But we'll see about that. Look, one last point. I want to get to Dave Lapham here. And we got plenty of Super Bowl talk on, on that. But one team that probably should have made some moves, according to pretty much everybody else who talks about sports, is the Lakers and they did nothing. Um, is that maybe the right move, Andrew? I don't know who they would want to get. I mean, certainly we will probably want to get out from under Russell Restbook, but who the hell is going to take him? I mean, they should have absolutely made a move. Should have. Like, it's, it's still the whole, like, what move are they going to make? I mean, they could have traded for John Wall, but, like, how do we know? That's not I mean, just the same thing. God. Um, but, like, in a vacuum, if you're saying a team with LeBron James, Anthony Davis, and Russell Westbrook, Three players that made the NBA top 75 of all time in the on the Lakers, the marquee team of the NBA, and they're this bad. Can't get over 500. Decide, and they decide <laughs> we're gonna just keep doing what we're doing as our we like what we got. <laughs> we like our we like our cards. We have a two, a three, and a four in a in our 
in our hand and we like our odds against the guys who have aces and queens. But no, no need, no need to, 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 to make a move. It's, it's laughable. LeBron James is out here after the Bucks game saying, this team is garbage. Like in his nice, you know, uh, cloaked way of saying, this team sucks and it's a joke. We will never compare to this Bucks team this season. I mean, it's absurd. If you had told us, remember at the beginning of the year when it was like the Lakers are title favorites and everyone's like, but this, this fit doesn't make any sense, but it didn't matter to Vegas. Didn't matter to all the NBA insiders and, and people who covered the Lakers that just want to like blast them and, and have them on the front page of ESPN all the time. Oh, they're the team to beat in the West. They legitimately may not make the play in games. They just lost to the Blazers who have like one NBA player and eight G leaguers. And again, yeah, the Lakers have three of the NBA's top 75 players of all time, supposedly. And I just yeah. love it. I just love yeah. it. <laughs> the Blazers could have their own segment for what they're doing, but we'll, we'll save that for another day. I guess I will say my last point, it's a little bit refreshing now on the back end of, you know, this decade of what has become sort of the big three era in the NBA, right? I mean, when, when the Celtics did it, when the Nets have done it, well, I guess let's call it the, Cel the ones that work, right? The Celtics, the Heat, and the Warriors. But now we're at this point now where everybody's trying to put together those three superstars, those three you know guys on paper who are going to make you, regardless of how well of a fit it is, are going to make you on paper look like a Vegas, you know, favorite in Vegas. But now you've got the Nets big three that lasted 16 games and did absolutely nothing. That's blown up. And now you've got the Lakers big three who's three, four games under 500 with three of the top 75 players in NBA history. So it's kind of nice to finally see that kind of turn on the other side. And it's not just like, you can't just sign or trade for three big names and then hope it's going to work and it's going to take you to a title. It just doesn't work that way. So, hey, Lakers, you made this bed, lie in it. So that's a little bit of NBA talk for you. Um, let's move on to Dave Lapham. We've got him coming up, former offensive lineman for the Bengals, color commentator, and one of the coolest dudes ever. He's having the time of his life out in LA. He's probably never been more popular. So we're going to get him on right now and we'll be right back all right our guest for this special super bowl edition of the walk-ons is a former third round pick of the Bengals in 1974 he played 10 years in the trenches for cincy they also won a 1981 afc championship he's been the color commentator for the Bengals radio since 1986 he is the voice and pulse of all things Bengals football it's dave lapham dave how are you hey rick Seamus, how you guys doing today Oh, we're doing excellent now that you're on, man. I mean, you've got to be maybe the most popular guy in L.A. I mean, what, what's your day like today? I mean, you probably got just meetings, interviews all day long, huh? Yeah, it's crazy. We've got, uh, got a few, uh, few interviews to do, and then we're heading over. We have a welcome party to L.A. for, you know, a lot of the, lot of the, uh, the fans and uh, people that flew out with the team, friends and family, I guess you'd put it as such. Uh, they, they flew out four uh, planes full of friends and family and the cheerleaders and the whole nine yards yesterday. So the city is definitely going crazy. I mean, it is, it is off the hook, uh, excited about what's going on. And uh, Monday night before the team traveled here on Tuesday, they had a pep rally at Paul Brown stadium and they made 30,000 tickets available, the lower bowl. And they, they were gone in two hours. It was nuts. <laughs> Well, listen, I mean, that's going to be a great party, and it's certainly a long time coming. You know, Bengals are back in the Super Bowl, first time in 33 years. I mean, from your standpoint, you're, you're a Bengal lifer, right? You've been there with, with the organization almost 50 years as a player and a color commentator. How good does it feel to have this team back in the Super Bowl after 33 years? It, it, feels, it feels really good and, uh, and honestly unexpected because, you know, let's face it, this is the greatest turnaround in NFL history. Two years ago, the team's 2-14. 
And, uh, you know, then they win four games and tie one the next year. So over a two-year stretch, they're 6-25-1. And, and you certainly wouldn't expect, you know, that, to, that kind of a turnaround to go to the Super Bowl in year three. But uh, they, they rebuilt the defense through free agency and spent $125 million bucks both years in free agency. They got seven starters out of that. And then they attacked the uh, offense through the draft. And, you know, they hit on Joe Burrow and they hit on Jamar Chase. And, you know, they, they, they had the first pick in the draft because uh, of the 2-14 and 14 record. And they had the fifth pick in the draft because of the other season. And, uh, and they hit on some of those picks, obviously. And, and here they are. I mean, they just, like a lot of teams that go to the Super Bowl, they, get, they started playing their best football at the most opportune time. And they, they got hot just when you should get hot and they're playing a uh, very sound football. The thing that's underrated about this group is how well the defense has been playing. I mean, they've really done a, done an unbelievable job. So th this team already has some first first team to win a playoff game on the road in franchise history. Prior times we went to the Super Bowl, we were a number one seed and had home field advantage and won games there to go to the Super Bowl. It's not like didn't win playoff games, but you know, there was a long stretch where over 30 years where they didn't. And, you know, under Marvin Lewis, the team went to the playoffs five years in a row, which is hard to do. Not a whole lot of franchises can say they did that, but they didn't win a, a playoff game. So it was, a, you know, a, a sour pill, bitter pill, obviously, to swallow for the fans. And finally, now they've got a team that is uh, building a legacy, man. They really are. Yeah, you, you hit on it, Dave. You know, I mean, this this really has been an incredible turnaround from the 2-14 season and 4-11-1. Joe Burrow, of course, going down with that nasty MCL-ACL injury. But I want to just look about at this season, Dave. I mean, week nine, this team was 5-4, and back-to-back -back losses to the Jets and the Browns. Week 14, they're 7-6, and six, lo losses to the Chargers and Niners in back-to-back -back weeks. I mean, look, I'm sure you believed in this team. The talent was evident. What you guys did on the defensive side of the ball was evident. But – be realistic. I mean, we're looking at mid-December, this team's seven and six. Do you really think this team had a chance to make a Super Bowl run? Or is it maybe, you know, we try to get in the playoffs and then we come back next year with, you know, with some fire in our heart? Actually, exactly that. You know, I mean, beginning of the season, before the season started, I thought they, you know, they had more weapons. They had, they had, uh, had put more pieces together. I thought they had a shot to maybe win nine games and nine games might get them a wild card type thing. Um, and if they could get 10, that would be unbelievable. I didn't think 10 wins would win the division, though, in the AFC North, and it did. Um, so they, they clinched it against Kansas City Chiefs in early January with the 10th win and then rested everybody against the Cleveland Browns and um, lost that football game and go in at uh, 10 and 7. But, yeah, in those stages that you're talking about in the season, well, they're still tracking to win those nine games. If they can just get those nine games and maybe – be a wild card, make noise, maybe win a playoff game or something. And hey, something really to hang your hat on and build. Like I said, they hit, they caught fire at the right time. And um, it was initially the, the, the catchphrase slogan for the team was why not us? And Joe Burrow's like, yeah, not, not, that's not good enough. You know, we're, we're not underdogs. We're here to make noise, win the playoffs. Now we're as good as anybody else to make some noise. And uh, CJ Uzama changed it to, it is us. So th this football team has an earned confidence. You know, there's no question about it. They're a young football team. And sometimes when you're young, you don't know what you don't know. And sometimes it's good not to know what you don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes youthful exuberance is all you need to just carry you through. And this team certainly has it in spades. I mean, you mentioned Joe Burrow, obviously what, what more can you say about the guy? He, what, he won the NFL comeback player of the year award last night. Um, great honor, obviously well-deserved, but 
I mean, you know, we've talked about where this kind of team, where this team came from, but Joe Burrow, a year removed from that ACL MCL injury. I mean, obviously still questions about the offensive line. I want to get your take on that in a minute here. Uh, but just from, from what Joe Burrow has done being this, this young and, you know, obviously what he did at LSU speaks for itself and what he's done here in year two in Cincinnati. I mean, this guy, this guy is, he's got it, right? He's got it. He's got the it factor, whatever it is. Sometimes it's hard to define, but no, you know, when you have it, you don't want to lose it. He's got it. He's not going to lose it. I don't think uh, the thing about Joe, I mean, obviously he can play first and foremost. You have to be able to play. He's got a great mind for the game of football. He puts in the work. He's a big prep guy. First one in the building, last to leave. So the teammates are like, geez, look what Joe's doing. Maybe I better do a little more. So he raises the bar every way. But I think the biggest way he raises the bar is his, is his physical and mental toughness. You know, I mean, Joe's dad was a defensive coordinator and a hell of a coach for a lot of years, played defensive back in Canada um, and, you know, is a hell of a, was a hell of a coach, retired to watch Joe play in the pros. He's got two brothers that played linebacker at Nebraska. Joe Burrow plays quarterback with the defensive player's mentality. When he was at Ohio State and it wasn't working out, he asked Urban Meyer to cover kickoffs. And Urban Meyer's like, no, but he wanted to be a, he's a football player is what he is. And it shows up, I mean, he took those nine sacks in the Tennessee game. He was sacked 11 times. One was nullified by timeout, one by penalty. But, you know, he goes to the ground with nine hits and get up every time, went to the sideline, got his computer and his headsets and the coach, what do we do? Let's get better. Never, never any kind of, uh, you know, cussing the teammate out or getting on people. And he just, he's tough, man. And, and he never flinches. You know, I've seen really good quarterbacks. Once they get hit a few times, they sack themselves. You know, Joe's not that guy. He's always trying to extend and create plays, sometimes to a fault. I think he's got to you know, realize what that fine line is, and he, but he's so competitive. He doesn't want to give up on anything, but the teammates, his teammates respond to him, man. He is physically and mentally as tough as any football player on that team. Yeah. And that's the guy, that's the kind of guy you want, you know, leading you between the lines in the battle. And, and he, he definitely has it, but look, let's be honest here. I mean, we, we talk about Joe Burrow, how important he is to this team and the city as a whole, right. But you got to keep this guy upright. You mentioned those 11 sacks, nine recorded sacks against Tennessee, I think a lot of people, including myself on this show, were maybe critical of that pick at five in the last draft with Jamar Chase. Obviously, that worked out, of course, but it felt to me like it was maybe a bit of a luxury pick, you know, with what happened to Joe Burrow last season and obviously what's been happening this season, you know, 55 sacks given up in the regular season, third most in the NFL. What's your take on this offensive line? I mean, there's also questions maybe Joe holds the, holds the ball a little bit too long, but I'm just curious as a former offensive lineman yourself, what's your take on this offensive line? Well, that Tennessee uh, pass rush had three capable rushers and that's kind of what they're facing against the Rams, not just a guy, you know, where you can put two hats and four hands on them, you know, double them every, every time, you know, you got to pick your poison. You're going to double Aaron Donald, but then Von Miller could eat, you know, and Floyd could eat and others could eat. So uh, that, that's the, that's the problem. Uh, and what they did, every, every sack had, it has its own story. And uh, sometimes guys not winning their one-on-ones, Joe's holding the ball, taking a sack. Other times linemen, uh, miscommunication, loud, loud crowd, bad crowd noise to deal with, uh, tackle slides, guard doesn't, free runner to the quarterback, boom, sack. So, you know, it's some, some it's mental, uh, it's, it's physical, not winning the routes, getting beat on tech, you know, not using proper technique and pass protection, uh, back not solid enough and blitz pickup, tight end not slow, blocking well. I'd say half the sacks, though, were probably on the offensive line, and uh, they do, that, that's the area they do need to improve, and I think they will improve it. But what they did the following week uh, in, in the playoffs is against Kansas City, they just got the ball out of Joe's hand faster. Uh, they used the screen game. 
Asmaje P. Ryan scored a 41-yard touchdown on a screen. You know, they ran some draws. And, put, and bottom, you have to run the football at least well enough where Joe Mixon's a threat because the easiest way to handle, you know, a good pass rush team is to have play action passing where you have extra blockers and you have the, the run fake that should control them, you know, at least slow them up the line of scrimmage. They have to respect it and then restart to rush the passer. So if you're not running a lick, they disregard it. But if you've got a little bit of running game, you can run play action and not have to put your quarterback in shotgun and, and, you know, drop back and pass protect and just let those guys pin their ears back and tee off. So there's a myriad of ways that they can slow that pass rush down. I know one thing we, you know, it, it's like the tight end before he releases slam that defensive end slam Von Miller. Let, and let them know you're there. And then the guard, when the guard slides, slam them on the inside when you're sliding. So hit them from every angle you possibly can. Same with Aaron Donald. Center goes to help, slam them with the guard. You know, make them stop and restart. I think they just have to be physical, uh, be diverse with the way they attack it in terms of, uh, you know, multiplicity of how guys are getting hit and where they're getting hit from. And just make them think a little bit, and that'll slow them down. Yeah, uh, look, there's some some juicy mashups all over the field. Obviously, the offensive line of Cincinnati is going to be it's they've got to hold up against that defensive line. But I mean, you look across the field, this is what the Rams have basically been set up to do, right? I mean, you've got Von Miller, you've got Aaron Donald, you've got Jalen Rams. They brought back Eric Weddle out of retirement. I mean, there's names all over the field. But the Cincinnati offense, this is this is a legitimate offense. You mentioned Joe Mixon, obviously Jamar Chase, Higgins, uh, you, Tyler Boyd. I mean, there, there are weapons all over the map. Is there maybe one? maybe an early, early on one-on-one -on -one matchup that you're looking at that, you know, might decide sort of how this game goes through. For, you know, I mean, I, I think, yeah, I, I think it's going to be interesting. How do they, how do they match up uh, Jamar Chase? You know, yeah. they're, they're a team that um, they got Jalen Ramsey, one of the best cornerbacks in the league, but he's not necessarily during the course of the year, very rarely has he just followed, is he going to chase chase? In other words, chase mo motions all the way across the football field. Is, is he going to chase him or are they going to, you know, hand it off and, and stay on their respective sides of the field and all that sort of thing. They use him all over the place. I mean, the, a big part of their defense, Jalen Ramsey is left corner, right corner, inside, left, inside, right in the slot. They use, utilize him almost as a safety in some of their defensive packages. He's so versatile. Now, do you take him away from all that? It's almost like you, we're moving Jalen Ramsey around. You got to locate him because this guy's a ball hawk, you know, do they give that up and say, we're going to, do that with Chase. And then uh, if, if, he, if they do that with Chase and say, okay, he's an eraser, and they double Higgins, Tyler Boyd in the slot, you got to win your one-on-one. -on -one, you know, I mean, they can't double everybody. And uh, maybe if, if T. Higgins starts going off, maybe they say, all right, well, uh, Jalen, now you, you, you match up on Higgins and, and we'll double Chase, you know, take him out that way. I think they're going to do a lot of different things. I think it's going to be very multiple. But the, the good news is, like you described, I think the Bengals – trio of wide receivers is as good as there is in the national football league. I think they've got multiple weapons there and Joe Burrow is not hesitant to use any of them. He distributed the ball. Every one of those guys had 65 catches or more, 65 to 81 catches, you know, so he let coverage dictate. I mean, he didn't try to force it. You know, he, he's uh, he's very good about that. And, uh, and then also the, the X factor is going to be CJ Uzama is a threat and he helps in the running game and he's a really good receiver. Is he going to be able to go? Is that uh, sprained MCL going to allow him to go? And uh, that, that's that's a big a big deal for for both uh, football teams. Will their tight ends? I mean, the Rams' second leading receiver Higby, Higby too. Yeah, Higby's, Higby's in trouble. So yeah. will the tight ends be the X factors that they've been for their football teams all regular season long?
Yeah, absolutely. And I think maybe one other X factor that everybody loves talking about, we love talking about the kicking game, right? And you guys, you guys have a good one. I mean, talk about another maybe questionable NFL draft draft pick in the NFL draft last year, Evan McPherson going in the fifth round, a lot of question marks. Well, clearly that's worked out. I mean, this dude's 12 for 12 in the playoffs. It absolutely nails a couple game winners against Tennessee and Kansas city. I mean, I absolutely love the, the story that he basically said before he kicked it in Tennessee. Hey, guess we're going to the AFC championship game boys. I mean, this game could end up coming down to, you know, a field goal to win it. And I, I I'll take McPherson any, any day, but I mean, in your opinion, how, how amazing is it for this guy to be this good, this young, right? I mean, you talk about Justin Tucker, but Justin Tucker wasn't Justin Tucker until four or five years in. This guy's a rookie, and he's, he's on the map. He's in. Yeah, I mean, uh, he, he had the record at Florida. He hit a 60-yarder at Florida, and his brother hit a 61-yarder this year. <laughs> and uh, I, I should say in high school, he had a 60-yarder. His brother hit a 61-yarder oh, and uh, broke the record. He's going to Auburn. That's so, awesome. I mean, but they say, they say at Florida, Shane Graham – former Bengals kicker Darren Simmons was his coach in Florida he took video of him hitting from 68 regularly 68 yards in Florida and so Darren's like wow so when he went to evaluate him and the pre-draft workouts the pro days there were you know every team had their special teams coach there and it's like you know when a guy like Ken Griffey Jr. is in the batting cage makes a different sound coming off his bat mm-hmm. when he hits when he strikes the ball and it compresses Darren said it makes a different sound man and everybody was like whoa so he said, look, we don't take him now. We're not going to get him because other teams are going to draft this guy. This guy is that good. He's a draftable kicker, and we better make the move now. And you're right. He, in, in, uh, from 50 and beyond, regular season, nine for 11, two for two in the playoffs, and, you know, walk off 52 yarders too. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy how, how talented he is. And I think he's the first to tell you his, his, his snapper, Clark Harris, has been around 14 years. Kevin Huber, the punter and the holder, has been around 13, so he doesn't worry at all about the snap and the hold. The operation he knows is going to be perfect. They've both been pro bowlers at those spots, and he just has to go kick it. And, boy, this dude, he can strike it, man. Yes, yes, he can. Uh, he's impressed. I remember, actually, there was a viral video. I think there was, a, like, a water bottle up in the rafters, and he kicked the top off of it. That's when I was like, okay, all right, yeah, yeah he's a draftable <laughs> kicker. I, I'm okay with that. Well, Dave, we're almost out of time, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up your, your play calling skill because we absolutely love hearing you call these games. It's been a, an absolutely fun ride. I mean, the winner, the winner in Kansas City, you were just going off. You, the feeling that we get you know, listening to you, you, you're as much of a fan as you are a guy calling the game. I, I just Has this been maybe the funnest season that you've had, maybe the funnest ride as a commentator in your 30-plus years? Yeah, I mean, I was fortunate enough to uh, broadcast Super Bowl twenty three but that was pretty early on, you know, and, and uh, I think I took it for granted a little bit, you know, played yeah. in one, played in one, played in Super Bowl 16, then broadcast the Super Bowl 23. And I thought, Oh yeah, this is going to, and boy, 31 years, you know, it's a, it's kind of a drought. So yeah, this one, this one's very exciting because so unexpected and um, you know, playing it is so different too. In this era, in the eighties, uh, social media wasn't around now social media, the organization, the players are so much closer with the fan interaction. It's, it's absolutely crazy to be in the city of Cincinnati right now. It is nuts. Yeah, it's the place to be. Absolutely. Number one place in America. Well, Dave, we really appreciate the time. This is a podcast that's going to be pulling for Cincinnati, and I hope to hear a, a nice little bam, bam, bam out of you because we want the Cincinnati Bengals to take it home for their first ever Super Bowl trophy. I would love to see Joey Burrow lifting that Lombardi. Also want to give a shout out. You've got, of course, Dave is the, the host of In the Trenches podcast. 
Uh, you can check it out at DL in the trenches on Twitter. Make sure to check it out. It's a good one. Dave, thank you so much for the time, man. Appreciate you, Rich. Have a good one. You too. Take care, Rick. All right. Our thanks to Dave Lapham. Of course, got to check out the In the Trenches podcast. You can follow it on Twitter at DL in the trenches. You can also check him out on Instagram, Dave Lapfamit. It's Dave, L-A-P-H-A-M-I-T-T. So maybe just check him out on Twitter. It's probably a lot easier that way. But Andrew, that was a lot of fun. I know you came on late, but we had a great talk with Dave, just breaking down all things Bengals, everything around the game. And actually, for, for those of you listening at home, I know one of the, the points of interest there for Dave uh, in the matchup of this game was, was going to be the tight ends, CJ Uzama and uh, Tyler Higby. They were going to play, number one. And it looks like, actually, as we were talking to Dave, Tyler Higby has been ruled out. So that's big. That's a big blow for the Rams. But um, look, that, that was awesome, man. I, I, I'll take anybody, especially with related to the Bengals. And that guy lives and breathes it more than anybody in the country, probably. Yeah, I'm just bummed I couldn't be there for the interview. Um, you know, I would have loved to give it a bam or two in there <laughs> with him. But, uh, you know, my only my biggest regret, though, is that he, he didn't he didn't call you dick instead of Rick. That would have been even better. Um, <laughs> You know, I, it would have been like the perfect way. I could have just called you Dick for the rest of the time, and it would have made sense. Uh, I know it would have been. It would have been a nice little, <laughs> nice, something for you. We can call it the Dick and Schuster show or the Dick and Duster show. That would have actually been much that, better. That sounds like some good '80s New York radio, right? Dick there. and Duster. Yeah, Dick I like it. Listen, man, Dave can call me whatever the hell he wants. He can call me Ricky Two Shoes, Big Dick Rick, whatever the hell he wants. He's coming on our show. He's doing. He's doing work during Super Bowl week when he's probably the biggest man in demand out there on Radio Rose. So. He can call me whatever the hell he wants, but uh, I appreciate him at least, you know, sticking with it, right? He didn't go Rick, he didn't go Ronnie, and then he just called me Rick and then went from there, went from the top. So, hey, Dave, all good, man. If you're listening, we got you. It's all good. You can come back on anytime, call me whatever you want. But it, let's talk about the game, right, Andrew? And, you know, you weren't here for the interview, but I think we some really good breakdown stuff, especially from the Bengals side. But let's let's look at the Rams, right? I mean, look, this game right here is it's kind of a tale of two teams, right? I think everybody at least suspected the Rams were going to be contending for this game, right? With all the moves they made, especially Von Miller in the middle of the year, OBJ, uh, the Bengals on the other side, certainly I don't think anybody expected them to be here. Maybe, maybe expected them to have a decent year. I mean, Dave Lapham himself said maybe nine wins and they sneak into a wildcard game would be sort of his, his top ceiling. So let's focus on the Rams. Obviously they did what they needed to do. I'm still two weeks later reeling from that loss from, from that game against the Niners. Um, but hey, it was a hell of a game. The Rams deserve to be here. I'm happy for Matt Stafford. What's your take on on just sort of their route to get here and and what they're what you're looking for for them in this game if they're going to win this one? Yeah, it, it's so odd. I feel like the Rams all year. I didn't really look at them as a team like when I watched them. Like, oh, this is the team that's it's going to be so heavily favored to win the Super Bowl when it's all said and done. Um, I know they made some big moves. They got they got Vaughn. They got Odell, and you know. They, they basically went all in with their draft picks. I mean, you know, the joke is they won't be drafting again until I'm in my 50s. Um, but it's, it's, it's still like when, now when you look at it, just the isolated matchup, it's, it seems to all be in the Rams' favor with the defensive line being such a strength and the Bengals' offensive line being not exactly their strength, to put Ooh. it lightly. Um, if the Tennessee Titans can get nine sacks, let's see if the, the Rams can get 20. Um, but yeah, no, I think once the Rams win it at Tampa Bay, and I know they, they gave up the lead late, but to have such a commanding lead over the Buccaneers in Tampa Bay was pretty astounding. Um, and they, you know, no offense to the Niners, but I, I do think if the Rams were to go into Green Bay, say Green Bay had won that game, I think we'd be looking at Green Bay here just because the 49ers were built to be a team that can play in cold weather in the snow. 
I think the Rams would have been severely overmatched with just the elements there. So it would kind of worked out to their favor how the matchups played out. And, you know, same with the Bengals. Like, it's, it's, I think it's the first time in a long time that we're not having a top three seed in the Super Bowl from either conference. So it's one of those years where it's like, I don't think anyone expected the Bengals and Rams to be facing each other. And it kind of feels like an odd matchup because it's not something we've been thinking about the whole year with, oh, there's these five or six teams that everyone kind of expects to be in the Super Bowl mix. And maybe you include the Rams in that, but a lot of people like myself didn't. So suddenly you have two teams at the beginning of the year you never thought were going to be here. And so it's just interesting. It's an interesting dynamic. And it's one of the Super Bowls where I think most people don't feel super strongly one way or the other. I think they're kind of rooting for the Bengals because it's a fun story. It's nice. But I don't think anyone's like severely like super um, opinionated one way or the other, unless you are a Bengals fan or a Rams fan. But are Rams fans really that opinionated yet? I don't really get that sense from that fan base. No, I mean, why don't you just take a look at the NFC title game and see how much red was still in that still in that stadium while the Rams were doing everything they possibly could to not get tickets sold to the to the Niners faithful. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's interesting, right? Certainly on paper, um, the Rams are a team that were built to be here. They were built for January and February, early February. But you know, it feels weird to call a team soft that's got you know Aaron Donald on it and Von Miller and Jalen Ramsey, but. I watched a lot of Rams football this year and they, there were times where they were soft. They would get run over. Um, you know, they just, they didn't look like they wanted to beat you in the mouth. They wanted to beat you with finesse and with, you know, high flying some, some big plays down the field. And I think you're right. If they, if they were the ones who ended up in Lambo, we might be talking about uh, a whole different ball game here, but look, the fact of the matter is they, they did what they needed to do. They beat very, very good teams in the playoffs. And now here they are. So it's, yeah, it's an interesting thing. I, I do very, very much worry as somebody who's hoping to see the Bengals come out of this one, how that offensive line is going to stack up. I mean, Dave Lappin mentioned it, right? Do they double Aaron Donald and let Von Miller eat? Uh, do they try to just pick up one-on-one and then Aaron Donald, maybe Leonard Floyd's going to eat? Uh, that's something that I think the Bengals are going to have to figure out. And I don't know if they're, you know, it's it's just going to have to be Joe, Joe Burrow just making his, making his magic. And, you know, I think I want to get your take on the quarterbacks too, right? Because look, Matt Safford, obviously he's he's been languishing for almost a decade in, in Detroit. He's finally got a chance to play on the big stage. Um, Joe Burrow, obviously, in his second year coming off the knee injury, he's here. Look, for my money, I mean, just when I watch Matt Stafford, yeah, the guy's got a killer arm. He can make all kinds of different arm slot angles, but he he, he can miss guys. I've seen him miss easy throws quite a lot. Um, and Joe Burrow, for whatever reason, Joe Shiesty, call him whatever you want. That dude just puts the ball wherever he wants. Kind of feels like Vince Vaughn and Wedding Crashers. Like I was first team all state. I'll put the ball wherever I want. I'll make it rain out here. So, you know, when it comes to maybe a quarterback play, do you think that that could actually tip the scales here? Because if, if I'm putting my money on one quarterback in this game, it's going to be Joe Burrow, regardless of what's going on around him. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're one drop pick away from the Niners being in this game. And oh, that was God. a bad throw. That wasn't like the cornerback made a great that was a, throw. That was a horrible throw. Yeah, and even worse play by Jaquiski Tart, but that was a terrible, terrible throw. Yeah, so, I mean, Stafford, you know, for the longest time, it's been, oh, he's in Detroit. They weren't setting him up for success. Now he's in L.A., and look, he's in the Super Bowl. I mean, he's still a great NFL quarterback, but I don't really look at this game as, like, these, these two mammoth figures in, in the NFL in terms of their quarterback status. I mean, Joe Burrow was coming off an ACL injury last year where he couldn't walk, and then this year it was like, it'd be great if the, if the, the Bengals, you know, were an eight- or nine-win team. And then at the end of the day, they still only were a 10 and 17. And I think people are loving Joe Burrow in terms of like his coolness, you know, his demeanor, what he brings to the table is just a guy you want to root for. But at the end of the day, like you look at these playoff games, he wasn't throwing up massive numbers 
he wasn't, you know, winning the game, putting the game on his shoulders and just single-handedly, you know, dropping five touchdowns to lead his team to victory. It's more, he's just a fun guy to root for and he is good and he makes big throws when he needs to. But I don't look at either of these and saying, wow, it was really the quarterbacks that got these teams into this game. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Look, not to bring up Dave Lapham again and again and again, but he was our guest and we're going to give him some depth. But, you know, he mentioned what the Bengals did on the defensive side of the ball. I mean, bringing Hutchinson over from uh, from New Orleans was a huge, huge get. I think something that probably flew under the radar, but the dude had, what, 11, 12 sacks this year and had a great game against Kansas City. Uh, that's been one of the interesting things for me is, you know, especially with regards to when they played in Kansas City, um, what you have to do against Mahomes. But I mean, they were rushing three that entire second half and that game looked like it was over. And then you, you've got three guys, Sam Hubbard, Hutchinson, and then, you know, Ogan Joby or whoever was playing the DT. I mean, getting pressure with three is going to be super important in this game, I think. And if you can put Matt Stafford under pressure with three guys and have eight drop in back into coverage, um, that's certainly a, a definitely a recipe for success. And I think a lot of people, you know, you got uh, a woozy too on, out there. Um, you know, what they've done just inject Eli Apple. I mean, these guys are kind of under the radar free agents that they brought in and they've all kind of gelled at the same, same time. Right. And it's been one of those magical runs. I think we've talked about this before. The Bengals kind of feel like a team of Desti. I'm certainly pulling just for the city of Cincinnati. I mean, they, they are dying, dying for a champion. I think that would be awesome. I don't really care about LA. They can have, you know, they already got their Lakers. They get, they got whatever they need. So um, certainly from my end, I'm going to be pulling for them. And I, it's, I, I think it's going to be the defense that sort of makes the, the change here, but um, rather than just pick, uh, you know, pick a winner here Andrew. let's let's do a few prop bets right because one of the best things about the super bowl we've got prop bets all over the place um do you have any that you're looking at right now that you really are going to be hammering tomorrow i don't know how many different nicknames can the broadcast booth use for joe burrow <laughs> over under 15 15 <laughs> my conservative take conservative take i think one one of the ones that's getting a lot of run is matthew stafford 1.5 over under touchdown passes I'm, I don't know. That's kind of sneaky. I, I would take that. I, yeah. I, I'm not really going to bet on anything in this game, but I like that. I think it was like, even though we just mentioned some of the Bengals secondary, I think the Rams, if Cooper cup and Odell Beckham both have good games, I don't really see a world in which they've, they've lost a game where they both had good games. Um, you know, it's just, it's that, that really seems to be the X factor was Odell Beckham playing kind of like his 2016 self. Um, in a lot of the stretches of the playoffs. And, you know, that's huge. They lost Robert Woods, who at the time was a huge part of their offense. And it suddenly was all on Cooper Cup. And he still balled out in the playoffs. But to have two really big wide receivers that kind of keeps the defense honest, it, that's going to be a huge X factor for the Rams. So, yeah, I like the two touchdowns. Yeah, yeah, I like it too. They're one that you always got to love. You got the color of Gatorade plus 400. I mean, if it's Cincinnati, it's got to be orange, right? Got to go orange. Yeah, and I mean, I, I guess the Rams blue, you know. Yeah, blue or one of those like that weird like purple fierce one, which tastes the, like uh, shit. They could just do the classic like kind of neon yellow Gatorade. Yeah, and yeah, that's kind of like a cop those, out. That's like what their two their colors are though. So. Yeah. No, it's funny. Actually, I'm looking at our Twitter feed right now, Andrew, and uh, we've mentioned, you know, fans in LA, have they really kind of come around yet? Well, there's a hell of a lot of orange at LAX. And actually, we were talking, Dave Lapham mentioned earlier that he, I think they had three or four planes of, you know, friends and family, everybody flying out. I mean, Cincinnati is hammering the streets of LA this week, and I absolutely love to see it. It's really awesome. Yeah, this is, this is a, a game, if you're a Bengals fan, that you're like, I would spend 
way more money than I should on a Super Bowl ticket because we just oh, don't yeah. know if this will ever happen again. Um, the, for a Rams fan, even like I said, I don't know how many that devoted Rams fans there are, even in Los Angeles are probably not that devoted. They're like, I'm going to go spend a couple thousand on a Super Bowl ticket. You're going to get a lot of LA's residents, but I wouldn't say they're Rams fans. It's these rich LA people who want to be seen going to the Super Bowl. There's going to be a lot of, um, you know, uh, what's his name? Um, I'm blanking on his name. Rob. He wears the, the NFL hat. Oh, Rob Lowe. Yeah, Rob Lowe. I had a brain fart there. Which is, it's going to be a lot of folks with the Rob Lowe take of just wearing the NFL hat. Just the and NFL logo. Oh, yeah. God. <laughs> I don't even think Ro- Roger Goodell would be caught dead wearing an NFL logo right now with all the things he's got going on. But <laughs> yeah, look, it, it's it's awesome to see. I mean, most Cincinnati fans, if you know, they haven't even been, even been alive when this team's been good enough to be in a Super Bowl or an AFC Championship game. I mean, you see that that one fan who was. I think he's 89 or something. He finally gets a chance to go to the game. Like this is the kind of stuff that this is why you love sports, right? I mean, team, guys who have just been living and dying with their team in Cincinnati, Ohio for decades. And now they finally get a chance to get it paid off. I mean, yeah, this is, this is the time where you're going to, you get a little silly and you pay a little bit more money than maybe you should, because this is a potentially once in a lifetime experience. Believe me, it's as a Niners fan, you think that you can get there every year, but it's, it's just so much more difficult than you could even possibly fathom. So good for Cincinnati. I certainly hope they take it home. Let's talk our winners, Andrew. I mean, obviously we kind of broke down what we think is going to happen in this game and some of the key matchups, but who do you like in this game? Bengals, baby. Bengals, there's, no, baby. there's no logic to it on paper. You would just say, now the Rams are going to win this game. They, they have all the key matchups in the trenches. That's a huge Huge thing that can determine the status of a football game. And they clearly have the the strength there, but screw it, man. Joe Burrow, he's my favorite player who's not a Broncos player. I know I had to get a Broncos reference in here at least once, you know that. But he, uh, yeah, he's, he's fun to root for. I'm rooting for the Bengals, and there's no logic to that pick. It's just that's what I want to have happen. That's okay. I don't think there's logic to any pick. I mean, even the experts who are on you know, Fox and CBS who are picking it, they have no idea what's actually going to happen. I'm going with the Bengals, too. One, because I want to. Two, because Joe Burrow is the freaking man. And then three, because I just think it's, well, certainly can't root for the Rams. So I'm going to go 27-24, and Evan McPherson's going to kick a 56-yarder to win it with time expiring. So let's do that. Let's call it that. Um, all right, Andrew, let's wrap this thing up. Let's go with your dudes and duds. You got a dude for me? Oh, my dude is the guy at the Sacramento Kings game this week after they make the trade. <laughs> who gets very prominently placed on their broadcast holding up a sign with this big smile on his face saying, welcome to hell, Sabonis. <laughs> and my, it's just like, the sign is great. The, the, you know, the mentality behind it's fantastic, but it's just, how did the Kings let that get onto the broadcast? Just like, clearly like you can't bar someone from, you know, being in that area on screen, but you have to know like, all right, we can't show this guy like, Get, get him out of there, like cut to a different angle where we can't see him. It's just, that's laughable. And it's just, even the Kings fans know, like the team we root for is an absolute, like just abomination of an NBA, an NBA franchise. And it's just so fun to see. Yeah, there's certainly no science behind that, but I have to believe at least somebody who was on that broadcast team saw that and were like, yeah, we're going to show this because look, they may never say it because they're professionals, but anybody who's in that organization probably knows that they're already in the seventh layer of hell anyway. So, you know, it's like their secret call for help, right? (laughs) Like somebody who's been kidnapped, they just hide up like a little sign, like, help me, 
<laughs> so he knows, and I think everybody in that organization knows it's it's, a, it's an absolute shit show. I'm going to go with my dude of the week as a fan as well, another singular fan. And I hate to do this, but I, I love this guy so much, I'm going to do it. So obviously with the, the MLB offseason, there's a lot of stuff on the table. Uh, one of those being the universal DH. Apparently in LA yesterday, they were going to set up at Dodger Stadium a uh, basically a picket line to stop the universal DH. One guy, one guy showed up. One guy showed up with a sign that says death to the, death to the, to the universal DH. So uh, it's very indicative of LA. You know, nobody really seems to come out and do anything to support anything that they believe in. But this guy showed up. He probably, he also looks like a dude who's probably never seen a baseball game in his entire life and probably doesn't even know what the DH is. But I respect him for standing out in front of Dodger Stadium saying death to the universal DH. That's a dude I can get behind because he believes in at least something. Yeah. All right, Andrew, who's your dud, buddy? Oh, my God. Well, just because we, we have to throw some commissioners some love this week. Um, I think I know who you're going to pick for your dud, so I'll pick the other commissioner, Roger Goodell. I mean, it's, it's more like the NFL as a whole stands for this dud because he's really kind of their symbolic figurehead. It's just it's, it's laughable that, you know, this Brian Flores um, lawsuit has a lot of nuances to it. So I don't really want to comment on that specific lawsuit, but it's just bringing to light once again how clearly messed up the system is in the NFL with, with like not having more minorities in places of power. Cause I know the Texans just hired Levy Smith, which brings the head coaches to two, but in a league with 70% plus percentage of the players being black or, or not white, it's just, how can you only have two black coaches in the NFL? And even worse, like you have 32 owners who not a single one of them, the exception of Shad Khan are, you know, of a or they're not white. Like they're all white guys. They're all old white guys. You need a glass of water there, pal? Yeah, they're all old white guys. And right now, like the Broncos are going for sale. And there's even just, it sounds like there's some whispers of it, of it mandating that there's a black coach and like, well, I would, or a black owner. And while that would be a great step, it's more like, what does it say about the league that you're having to like mandate something like that just as a gesture, just as a hollow gesture of like, all right, we'll have one black owner and that will fix everything. And that's not, that's not constructive. It's not how you fix this issue. There needs to be real change. And the problem is the people who actually have the power to enact that change, the owners, have no vested interest in doing so. No matter how many empty gestures or things they spray paint on the field before games, there's no actual movement within the NFL's inner circle of power to make this happen. It's just all like, how can we on the surface make a PR attempt at saying we're trying when we're clearly not? The Rooney rule is a sham. And as much as Brian Flores can you know, talk about how frustrating it was to be in those interviews, it's like every team is doing that to some extent because the rule is kind of messed up and making you hire people or interview people that it's just like, you know, if you've already got someone in mind and then you just start interviewing someone because you have to, it does no justice to that person or the team. It's just, it's kind of a messed up rule. It's an outdated rule and just the whole system stinks. And that's why it's Roger Goodell today, but it's really more the NFL, which once again, is doing some shady stuff. And in a week's time, the Super Bowl, it's we're going to be forgetting about it. It's going to fall on the periphery of, of what we're talking about. And it's just a shame because it's like they say they want change, but they're not really making any actual actions to do so. Right. One thing to say, another thing to enact it. And they certainly have failed in that respect. Yeah, look, my dad, it's low hanging fruit. It's, it's easy pickings, but it's got to be Rob Manfred. I mean, here we are in the middle of that lockout. We're already going to clearly it looks like you know, we're going to be delaying spring training. It certainly looks like we're going to be missing some games, possibly a shortened season. But really, 
you know, you could say a lot of different things about this dude. One thing that I just don't respect about him is that he treats fans and players like they just don't know what the hell they're talking about, right? He came out and basically said missing games would be a disastrous outcome, as if he wasn't the one who held the keys to actually get this back in order and work with the MLBPA and get this back, you know, get, get these guys back on the field, right? I mean, certainly there are a lot of different moving parts here that need to be agreed on, and that can be a difficult thing. But for Rob Manfred to come out here basically say, oh, well, missing games, you know, that's not my fault. That would be disastrous for the league and for the fans he doesn't fucking care he knew exactly when, what was going to happen when this lockout started on december 2nd these games were probably going to some games were going to be missed and that's just the way it is he's dragged this out he just he's hiding behind his little veil of being you know pompousing being this guy who's going to save the league and turn this around look man you've already done your best over the last five years to ruin this game it's already falling in popularity among amongst younger fans i mean that's just what it is you need somebody who's going to get in here and say all right let's work with the players let's make this the players league right not necessarily like the nba but if you want to talk about the nba playing the players league the mlb is on the further end of the spectrum they just don't seem to care at all about their players they care even less about their fans and rob manfred talks to everybody like they're four-year-old kids so rob manfred roger goodell do better that's it for us it is saturday what's today february 12th we've got the super bowl tomorrow super bowl sunday one of the best sundays of the year can't wait for it again our special thanks to dave lapham hope he's going to be enjoying that game and what was that andrew what does he do give me give me a bam to to send us home buddy because i tried and i definitely didn't do it one more bam (laughs) all right that's it we're the walkouts bam 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 Bam. The walk-ons.